I'm done. I've had enough of this difficult marriage. We've grown apart. We're not the same people we once were. I love you, but I'm not in love with you anymore. I'm unhappy, and and God wants me to be happy. Let's just part ways. Let's be amicable about this. You go find someone else to make you happy, and I will go and do the same. Let's stop avoiding the inevitable. Let's go ahead and file for divorce. How is it that a man and a woman who once made marriage vows before God and in the company of family and friends go from happily declaring, I do, to one day sadly announcing, I'm done. Divorce is not a light or easy topic to talk about. Regardless if you're sitting in the pastor's office, the counselor's office, or in the courtroom, when the word divorce gets thrown around, old wounds are opened up. Bad memories are brought up. Deep regrets and grave disappointments flood our thoughts. Divorce is not a topic that many choose to talk about because divorce, unlike many other things, touches us personally and it touches us painfully. In fact, if we were to take a poll in this room this morning on how divorce has occurred in our lives or in our family's lives or friends' lives, even in our own church, I think we all would have story after story we could tell. Stories filled with pain, stories filled with regret, stories filled with dashed hopes and shame, stories filled with tears and lots of doom. Personally speaking, by the grace and faithfulness of God, I have been married now for 14 years to the same woman. Praise the Lord. Proverbs 18.22 says, He who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. I found that good thing sitting right there in the middle aisle, Julie, on a cruise ship in the Bahamas in 2007. No, that's not a dating ad for a cruise ship finding a spouse, but it happened for me. And I'm blessed the Lord saw it fit to give me Julie in marriage 11 months later in June of 2008. I'm thankful for God's kind provision in giving Julie to me as a wife and a lifelong helpmate. But church family, I want to model before you is what I hope you would model before each other. Just because we've made it 14 years doesn't mean we don't need God's grace for the next 14 years. So pray for your pastor. Pray for your pastor's wife, that we would bear much fruit, that we would be faithful to our marriage vows, and that we would honor the Lord and give him glory for however long God gives us on this earth. But within Julie and I's extended family, divorce and remarriage, along with worldly and distorted views of sex and premarital sex, have been somewhat pervasive and common over the years. Currently today, I have an uncle who has been married three times, three aunts who have been divorced a combined total of four times, a cousin who has been divorced, and a cousin who was homosexual. 
In Julie's extended family, she has had cousins who cohabited together with their partner for multiple years, and some of them even conceived children all prior to becoming married. So friends, what I talk about this morning is not some ethereal thing. It's real and it's personal. When I became a pastor, I found out very quickly how prevalent and pervasive divorce was even amongst churchgoers and professing Christians. In my first church, just a little over 10 years ago in 2012, among the 20 or so people who were present my first Sunday, there were a few widows, a few kids, and all but two marriages had experienced divorce and remarriage. I still remember one of the first married couples, Julie, you may recall this night, who we had come over for us for dinner like we seek to do with you guys as we had small talk, got to know one another. Then Sandy said to Ron, well, honey, I guess we ought to go ahead and tell him. As a new pastor, I was about to be thrown into the deep end. I had discovered that each of them was on their third marriage. And even now, in our own congregation here at CCBC, a church made up of members that I love and deeply care about, you know your own stories. I don't need to recount those in detail. You know the pain and sorrow you have shared in my office and in your living rooms and with friends in this room. Stories accompanied by divorce. Among the 108 members we have as of today, approximately one-fifth of our married couples have a spouse that has experienced a divorce in their past. Within our flock, we have men and women who have either been divorced and are single or who have been divorced and have since remarried to someone else or they have married but are contemplating divorce in the present. And earlier this year, one member from our number was excommunicated for unrepentant sin and deserting his wife by remaining unfaithful to his marriage covenant. Brothers of us, and I would say the great majority, are still married to the same one they said I do to years ago. And that's something to rejoice in. That's a testimony of God's faithfulness. That is something you and I should celebrate this afternoon. But maybe, even though you have never been divorced, your son or your daughter has been divorced. Your brother or sister has been divorced. Or maybe you grew up in a home where your parents got divorced and maybe even remarried, and for you, the norm of your upbringing was splitting holidays, birthdays, and weekends with two different sides of the family. As elders at CCBC, we spent four months, probably a total of 16 hours or more, this past spring and summer on this topic alone. Studying at length, looking at the various passages of Scripture, thinking through the stories of difficult, complex, and sad experiences we've already had on this topic. And friends, we did that. Because as elders, we want to shepherd this church to the best of our ability, according to God's word, but also faithfully and graciously shepherd those who may come to our church in the future. Uh, friends, we can even go outside our own church. We can go outside our own family contacts, and you can get on the internet. You can look up the statistics on the global and national level. You can look at all the trends on how divorce rates have soared in the United States since the 1970s when no-fault divorce became legal. 
And through surveys and statistics, certainly they can be inaccurate. They can change from year to year. I did a little research this past week, just out of curiosity, to see what the divorce rates are like here in Arkansas. While certainly Arkansans statistically get married earlier in life than many other states, the percentage rate of divorces in the state of Arkansas is still in the top 10 in the United States. Some rank Arkansas in the top five, while others rank Arkansas number one. I say all these things not to shame anyone. I say all these things to wake us up, to wake us up to the sober reality of how frequent divorce has become in our society, how easy it has become for so many people to end terminate and dissolve what God beautifully and wisely designed to last until death. In response to these statistics, do you know how Christians should respond? We should grieve. We should lament. It should feel a little somber in the room because divorce is not God's design for marriage. It's a disruption. It's a distortion. It's a severe violation of what God made holy. Uh, friends, Josh Boyce, a pastor in the Atlanta area, exhorts Christians in this manner. Quote, we as Christians must not allow marriage covenants to end with the ease of instant potatoes or a drive through Happy Meal. Members of CCBC, Will we heed that exhortation? In order for us to go against the grain of our increasingly secular culture, in order for us to stand out as a bright witness for Jesus in our community, and to go against the grievous and disturbing trends of flippantly throwing away our spouses with the ease of instant potatoes and drive through happy meals, we must return back to the truth. What God says is reality and what is right according to his viewpoint. We must return back to the truth that actually sets us free from self-deception, from the bondage and the tyranny of doing what's right in our own eyes. Friends, as, the, as followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, we're called to obey the Great Commission, right? You, we know that text from Matthew 28. Most people think it's just about going to the nations. Well, that's certainly true. But in the Great Commission, in Matthew 28, it says we are to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the triune God, and do what? Teach them everything Jesus has given to us to obey. And friends, this morning, that includes what Jesus taught on marriage and divorce. Uh, friends, whether you're single, whether you're widowed, whether you're married or divorced, the supremely important question lies before us. What does Jesus teach about marriage? And consequently, what does Jesus teach about divorce? 
And what does Jesus' teaching on marriage and divorce mean for us this morning who call ourselves his lifelong disciples? If you have a copy of God's Word, please open your Bibles to Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10, if you're using one of the chair Bibles provided, you can find that on page 493. If you don't have a Bible, you can read at home. You can take the Bible and the chair back as a gift from our church to you. Mark chapter 10. This morning, we're back in our multi-year extended study in the Gospel of Mark. We left off last time in Mark 9, verse 50, back in May of this year. And so we've had an interruption of doing different things, studying God's Word in other places. And aside from the month of December, which I'll preach four weeks through the book of Ruth during Advent season, we will remain in Mark and finish the book sometime in March or April of next year. Mark chapter 10, starting in verse 1. And he left there and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan. Crowds gathered to him again. And again, as was his custom, he taught them. And Pharisees came up and in order to test him, asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answered them, What did Moses command you? They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. This is God's word. The passage before us this morning is found within what many commentators have called the way section of Mark's gospel. Of course, we know from the gospel of John and the book of Acts, the way is referring to following Jesus, who is what? The way the truth, and the life. But at this point in Jesus' ministry, the way primarily speaks about the way of Jesus going towards Jerusalem, going towards Jerusalem to accomplish the divine mission. He came from heaven to earth to accomplish. And that mission was to die on a Roman crucifixion device, to die as a substitute for the sins of all of us who would turn from those sins and trust him, and three days later, rise again. He was sent from heaven to earth to pave the way of salvation for sinners like you and me, who were once enemies of God, so that we might be reconciled to God by the blood of his son, Jesus Christ. Of the way section, this might be quite a while for you to remember, but it actually began in Mark 8, Verse 27, when Jesus challenged Peter 
and the disciples in that Gentile territory of Caesarea Philippi. And he asked them that ice-breaking question, or I would say heart-exposing question. Who do you say that I am? And at that point, in that pivotal question in Peter and the disciples' minds, Jesus began to teach them, I did not come for you to give me birthday parties. I came for a mission, a mission that would involve suffering, rejection, and death. You can read Mark 8, 31, his first time saying this, and then Mark 9, 31, and he is going to say it again in Mark 10 later in our passages. And within these passages, he gives some key lessons. Before we get to his teaching on divorce and marriage, he actually gives some lessons that I think are helpful for all Christians and especially those who are married. So if you look down in Mark 9, starting in verse 33 to 41, he highlights the lesson that Jesus taught repeatedly throughout his ministry. The lesson that the greatest in the kingdom will be the lowly and humble servant who receives the least of these on Christ's behalf. And then he taught for those who belong to Jesus, they will love and work with true followers of Jesus and not against them. And then we left off in Mark 9, verses 42 and 50 last time, where Jesus talked about the eternal dangers of unrepentant sin. He taught on the one hand of the dangers of committing sin by indulging in and acting on one's lustful desires. He teaches the truth that with that hyperbolic language. He talks about tearing off the hand, the foot, gouging out the eye. It's pretty graphic language. This is Jesus intensifying how we should be radical with our sin in our life. In other words, Jesus basically says this, don't play with sin. It will not only burn you here in this life, but if you do not repent, you will burn eternally in the next. It's a sober passage, but Jesus warns us, don't play with sin. Get radical with sin because the people of God are to be the salt of the earth and the light of the world. Now in Mark's gospel, he shows that Jesus's work in Galilee is complete. Jesus will no longer minister, heal, or teach in or around the Capernaum ever again. He now sets his face, Luke 9 tells us, towards Jerusalem. Look with me again, starting at Mark 10. Verse 1, and he left there. Where is there? It's Capernaum, Mark 9, verse 33, which was near and around the Sea of Galilee. And he went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan, and crowds gathered to him again. And again, as was his custom, he taught them. Jesus starts heading south now into the region of Judea or it could be translated territory or district. Uh, this was a, a territory he was familiar with, of course. Uh, we know that he had met already scores of people from Judea and Jerusalem earlier in his ministry. Uh, they wanted to hear him. They wanted to touch him. They wanted to see him. Uh, in fact, go back to Mark 3. Just hold your place really quick. Mark 3, verses 7 and 8. We'll know that this is not unfamiliar territory for Jesus. He had already met many people from there. Mark 3, 
Look at verses 7 and 8. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed. From where? From Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and so forth and so on. In other words, when Jesus shows back up in this predominantly Jewish territory, the fact a crowd came up to him again, Mark says, it's not surprising. It was to be expected. They knew who Jesus was. And Jesus knew who the crowds were. And he knew the crowds wanted to see him and hear him again. And guess what? Jesus did exactly what he does time and time and time again. And again, Mark says, as was his custom, he taught them. Friends, amidst all the wonderful and powerful things Jesus did in his ministry on earth, like feeding the masses, the few loaves of bread and a few fish, healing the sick, casting out demons, raising the dead, Jesus was not fundamentally a traveling, healing, circuit miracle worker. He wasn't the CEO of American Red Cross or exclusively a mercy ministry minister. He wasn't a healing and demon-delivering vending machine. Yes, he did all those things, absolutely. But when you and I read the gospel accounts, we must understand that Jesus wasn't going around performing signs and wonders to write a book at Books a Million or to make money on TBN. No, the miracles and the signs and the wonders were attesting to something greater. They were not an ends in themselves. They were a means. His miracles, yes, were validating his divine power. Only God could do what he could do. But they were also validating the authority by which he taught the scriptures. He was claiming to know the scriptures, both the intent and how to apply them with even greater accuracy than the best of scribes Judaism had ever known. Friends, Jesus was not claiming even to be a good teacher. He claimed to be the eternal word in human flesh, the son of the living God who spoke the very words of God. So whatever we are reading and studying about Jesus Don't get too preoccupied in the weeds of miracles, signs, and wonders. Those are the platform to open the curtain for God to speak to dead men's bones and make them alive. Oh, friends, I say all that as a slight apologetic when you're dealing with highly charismatic people. And I'm talking about like they drink a lot of coffee and a lot of, you know, Red Bull. But I'm talking... They are super preoccupied with miracles and wonders and say, if Jesus did this, we have a spirit, we can do that. Help them understand Jesus is not a healing vending machine. They were to attest to something greater. Jesus fundamentally was teaching the word of God so that when he died on the cross, it validated everything he ever spoke when he rose from the dead. The regular diet, friends, even of our lives, 
is dependent upon hearing and receiving the words of God. Friends, that means here at CCBC, we should take seriously the teaching of God's word. So if you're new here, if you're visiting for the first time and you're thinking, man, this has already been a fairly long service. I mean, we've sang like five songs and script reading. I hope this is the short sermon. The door's right there. Don't want to be rude and shock you. Get on the podcast. You are forewarned. Why do we do that? Well, part of it's because I'm long-winded. That's not really spiritual. That's a problem. But the second, and I would say greater reason we spend so much time in this book, we spend 170 to 180 hours out in the world, third of it's sleeping, third of it's working, and we get one shot together. One people under this book, under this God, to hear the truth. So friends, if that's not what you're about, this is not the church for you. We want the truth. We want nothing but the truth. And we want to be changed from the inside out by that truth. Friends, at CCBC, we must be earnest in prayer and we must be earnest in patience, much patience when teaching God's word. And Jesus didn't just teach the crowd once and said, hey, good luck. Did you notice what Mark says is, as was his custom? It's almost like Jesus put himself on repeat. Yep, saying the same thing again. It's about the 50th parable I've used. You're still not getting it. Okay, I'll do it again. I'll teach it in a different way. I'll sit down, I'll stand up, I'll get in a boat, I'll go on a mountain. I'll raise someone from the dead. I mean, I'm just going to keep teaching. And friends, when we see Jesus being that patient with people like us, friends, we should be patient with teaching others God's word. What did Paul tell Timothy in his pastoral-like ministry to do? Wasn't it just that? 2 Timothy 4, starting in verse 2, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. You know what that basically means? You don't need Greek to figure that out. Preach all the time. Teach all the time. When people are coming and when people aren't, get ready at all times to teach the word. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, and having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. Friends, this patient and persistent model of faithfully teaching God's word, we see very clearly in the life of Jesus. It was his custom, it was his regular pattern or discipline to teach spiritually hungry people the words of life. The crowds continued again and again to come to Jesus, and Jesus again and again was ready to teach. But amidst the hustling and bustling crowds, some people were in the crowds with mixed motives, a mixed agenda. They showed up to church for a very different reason than others did. And here again in Mark's gospel, we are introduced to these men who have always been fiercely antagonistic towards Jesus' ministry from the very beginning. 
the Pharisees. Look with me at verse 2. And Pharisees came up, and in order to test him, asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? As you may recall, the Pharisees were that strict sect of the Jewish people who were adamant about dotting their I's, crossing their T's when it came to obeying the Scriptures. Not so fast. They pretended to obey the Scriptures. It was an appearance of godliness, but they denied the power thereof. You see, during Jesus' ministry, he exposed these men as hypocrites. They wore masks, religious garb, quoting Moses, quoting the Scriptures, fasting and tithing and being the most religiously strict in adhering to what seemed to be the letter of the law. But Jesus saw right through them like an x-ray or an MRI. They were not the real deal. They were walking corpse, Jesus said. And during Jesus' ministry, we learn of their long track record of how they tried to reinterpret conveniently what the Scripture said to suit their own evil agenda in order to make them look good and others look more sinful than them. Friends, never forget this. Hypocrites own a lot of microscopes, but they don't ever look in the mirror. Hypocrites have lots of microscopes, but they don't ever look in the mirror. Jesus had dealt with these men in bold and sharp fashion. He debated with them, or really just refuted them, in Mark 2 and Mark 3 over the Sabbath day. He even dealt with their religious hypocrisy in a really just a scathing way and exposed them for their hypocrisy in Mark 7 when they elevated their man-made traditions over and above the teaching of God's Word. And we know even from Mark 8 verse 11 that the Pharisees argued with Jesus. They tried to corner Jesus and force him to demand to give them a sign. But friends, they're disputing with Jesus. Their demand for a sign was out of a heart of envy, a heart of jealousy. It was a heart of unbelief. It was not a sincere spiritual hunger for the truth. They demanded a sign, but you know why they were doing that? It was because they had already rejected the light and teaching that Jesus had already shown them time and time again. And you'll notice there, even in Mark chapter 10, verse 2, uh, we know the motives of the Pharisees when they engage with Jesus in this Q&A forum among the crowds. Uh, did you notice there in verse 2? It says they came up in order to test him. The Greek word here is paradso, which meant to try or test one's faith, virtue, or character. Uh, this word can be used at times in positive ways, as God tested Abraham in the offering up of his son Isaac, Hebrews 11, verse 17. And we know that God uses things like persecution and fiery trials to test Christians' faith, 1 Peter 1, verse 6. 
But the majority of the time in the New Testament, this word is used in a negative light. It's often used in the context of trying or testing one's faith in order to entice them or tempt them to sin, to reject God, to disobey his word. In fact, in Mark's gospel alone, this word is used four times. And I want you to notice when it's used and the subject of the sentence describing who's doing the testing or tempting. Mark 1, verse 13, and he, Jesus, was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted, pirazzo, by Satan, the tempter. Or Mark 8, verse 11, that I already alluded to. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. Pirazzo. And then again in Mark 12, verses 13 to 15, and they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why put me to the pirazzo, to the test? So in our passage this morning, where the Pharisees asked Jesus two questions about divorce, context is king. We must understand these questions were not coming from an abused or abandoned woman seeking honest help and refuge. These questions were not coming from a husband who was humble and broken and discouraged, sincerely wanting to love his wife. No, these questions were coming from a heart that had been, at the very least, influenced by Satan and a heart that had been stewing in deliberate, sinful scheming. Friends, just a strong word of counsel to all of us here. Not everyone who asks you questions about the Bible is doing so with a humble heart. Not everyone who asks you questions about what do you think about this text or that passage or this doctrine is asking you from a sincere and contrite heart. Oh, friends, people will ask with humble and contrite hearts. That's why you're a part of the church. Whether it's a membership class at CCBC or a Bible study at CCBC or even in our homes with our kids or with our classmates at school, or coffee with some buddies. But friends, as a Christian, you have to have a category in our minds that some people, even religious people, who can quote with the best of them, Bible verse after Bible verse, they will roam around in the church. They will even serve publicly in the church. They are using the Bible in order to justify their sin. They twist scriptures, take them out of context, 
and do so in a way that conveniently excuses their hypocrisy and totally disregards the clear teaching of the Bible. Friends, that's exactly what's going on in Mark chapter 10. They're asking Jesus, like putting bait out there in front of all these people. He's had all this success in his ministry, and he's heading to Jerusalem, and the heat's getting turned up, and they're going, let's corner him. Let's catch him in a contradiction. Let's catch him in hypocrisy so we can have his head chopped off like John the Baptist did. They want his number. And they're going to go to even God's word to justify their own sin and try to pirazzo, tempt Jesus. One theologian said that the Pharisees could never ask Jesus a question without sinister motives. Sin flowed through their veins. They cared nothing for him. So what was the Pharisees' sinister motivated question towards Jesus about? Well, look what they said. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? In other words, is it permissible? Is it allowable? Is it a-okay to divorce or put away one's wife? Just so our definitions are clear, because we need to be clear with definitions, don't want to assume. Uh, the word divorce here means to send away, to release, or to set free. It's to set free one's obligations to remain married to a husband or wife in marriage. It was, in essence, to cut marriage ties and separate one from another. Divorce is there by definition the dissolution or ending of a marriage covenant. But why were they asking Jesus that question? It's kind of random. Why then, why now? And in what way was this really a test for Jesus? I mean, he saw right through them. How, how was this a temptation for him? Well, the parallel account to Mark's record of this event is also found in a longer and more detailed version in Matthew chapter 19. So hold your place in Mark 10 and go to Matthew 19. Just as a hermeneutical principle, you interpret Scripture with Scripture and you compare accounts not as contradictions but to harmonize. So what we're doing this morning is we're looking at a more detailed expansion of the same account, but from Matthew's gospel. Now, of course, I would have to preach a series of sermons to go into detail in every verse here, but I do want to show you some similarities, but also some differences. And again, they're not contradictions, this harmonizing what God's word says. Look at me in Matthew 19, verse 3. And Pharisees came up to him and tested, perazzo, tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? That last phrase there just simply means for any reason. Some of your translations might say for any reason at all or on any grounds. You see, during Jesus' time, there was a hot debate between two rival rabbinical schools of thought. 
two very well-known and well-respected rabbis and their followers who had opposing positions on what legitimate grounds were for divorce. And so we find ourselves, Jesus finds himself in the thick of this hotly contested debate. The two schools of thought, the two rabbis were Shammai and Hillel. Shammai's view, which was known as the more conservative interpretation of Scripture, and then Hillel, conversely, the more liberal interpretation of Scripture. And their debate was, in this account, squared upon one passage of Scripture. And that passage of Scripture was Deuteronomy chapter 24. You don't have to turn there. You're more than welcome to turn there. I'm not going to spend a long time there. But Deuteronomy 24, verses 1 to 4, this is what they are bringing up and Jesus is responding to. Listen to what it says. Deuteronomy 24, starting in verse 1. When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, and she departs out of his house, and if she goes and becomes another man's wife, and the latter man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if the latter man dies, who took her to be his wife, then her former husband, who sent her away, may not take her again to be his wife after she has been defiled, for that is an abomination before the Lord. And you shall not bring sin upon the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. Now, without going into too much detail on this passage, the debate among the rabbis and their followers was their interpretation over verse 1, and specifically the word indecency. In Hebrew, it just simply means the nakedness of a thing, but it's kind of hard to interpret in light of how it's used in the Old Testament. If a husband found some indecency in his wife, he could write her a certificate of divorce. Over time, the two interpretations proved themselves to be vastly different, one very narrow and the other very broad. Shammai's view, which was the minority Jewish view at the time, said, quote, if a wife commits unchastity or sexual immorality, then the husband must divorce his wife and may remarry another. But Hillel's view, the majority Jewish view at the time, at least by the time Jesus is dealing with these questions, said not only sexual immorality or adultery was grounds for divorce, but also any cause. In other words, a husband could divorce his wife for anything at all that he found indecent or displeasurable to him. Anything at all. If she embarrassed him, if she disgraced him, if she disobeyed him, he could get rid of her. Write a certificate of divorce. Formalize it publicly for simply not wanting her anymore. Friends, you have to understand that we just finished the book of Nehemiah. There's a backdrop to this. Ever since Ezra, Nehemiah, and Malachi, the Jewish 
practice of marrying within Israel as God commanded them to, to be equally yoked, was coming grossly separated. There were Jewish priests divorcing their wives and marrying pagan women. There's Malachi chapter 2, preached it a couple years ago. And then in Ezra and in Nehemiah's day, they're marrying foreign women, pagan women, idolatrous women, and they're causing a leavening effect, an ungodly hypocrisy in Israel. And so Ezra and Nehemiah and Malachi are dealing with it hundreds of years later. Then we have 400 years of silence, and then we have the ministry of Jesus, and he walks into a culture. He walks into a context, even amongst the Jewish people, where no-fault divorce was the norm. It's just happening all over the place. Aside from the Shammai view, which says only sexual immorality, many took sides with Hillel's view. And Josephus, a Jewish historian who never became a Christian, he did the same. He sided with Hillel. This liberal agenda caused husbands to do the most selfish things to their wives. Like if a wife, if you read in the Mishnah, when a wife accidentally burned his dinner or spoiled a dish, she could be sent out with a divorce. I mean, think about it, people, think. My eggs are too runny. We're done. The bacon is not just right. It's too crispy. I like it a little soft and fat. Wait, they're Jews. They don't eat pigs. Or my bread is too hard. Or my fish taco is not as good as my mom used to make. We are done. And even more tragic, if a man found a woman more prettier or more pretty and more physically attractive in his eyes, that liberal interpretation of Deuteronomy 24.1 meant that many men just threw their wives out to find someone better looking. That was just a sampling of the types of things that the Hillel school of thought had influenced so many men in that culture. Sounds a lot like our no-fault divorce laws even here in America today. Uh, Friends, anytime we hear that, regardless of the reason, we should grieve. Whether it's Tom Brady or your best friend. So what did Jesus do? When Jesus was put to the test to answer this hotly debated question, what immediately comes out of his mouth? What is the first response, an immediate reaction to his deceitful and sinister opponents? Friends, here's what I want you to hear. This is, this is super important on this topic. Jesus says, you want to quote scripture? He brings scripture into the conversation and shows them their interpretive error. And then in rightly expounding the truth of God's word that does not change, he exposes the disturbing and destructive condition of their hearts. That's what God's word does. It exposes where we've been thinking wrongly about something, and then it shows us the reason for it, because our hearts aren't right. Look at verses 3 to 8. He, Jesus, answered them, what did Moses command you? Remember, the Pharisees highly esteemed Moses in the Old Testament. They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. Again, that's from Deuteronomy 24, right? Verse 5, and Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, 
he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Apparently, the Pharisees had sided with the Hillel school, the more liberal and majority view that had pervaded the Jewish men. But you notice what Jesus does? He doesn't even talk very much about Deuteronomy 24, kind of like I did. He's like, yeah, I know what that passage says, but I'm not going to go into the weeds with you on that passage because you're looking for a loophole. You're looking for an easy way out. You're not looking to be faithful to your marriage vows. And what he does is he corrects them and exposes them by quoting from two passages in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. He first quotes from Genesis 1.27. God made them male and female. So what Jesus does right there is something our secular culture needs to hear right now. Marriage is between one man and one woman. Not two men or two women. There is no category in the Bible for same-sex marriage. Don't give the culture that language. It might be a union, but it's a sinful union. It is not marriage. God defines marriage between one man and one woman bound together by covenant as a one flesh union till death do us part. That is a Christian, orthodox, will not change view of marriage. Amen? Do not let the culture put fear words into your mouth or in your head or make you think with we need to somehow celebrate. No, we respect people made in God's image, but we can respectfully disagree with them when they undermine clear teaching from God's word. And then he alludes to Genesis 2.24, and it is the passage, the verse, that Jesus and Paul always quote when they're teaching on marriage, or at least largely. Genesis 2.24, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Two genders, two distinct genders, man and woman coming together by mutual commitment to form a marriage union, to form a new family unit, to form a marriage covenant with God as the author and God as the authority of the marriage. It is lifelong, it is a companionship, and it is to be regulated and fulfilled by men and women especially those who are Christians, to image the relationship between Jesus Christ and the church. Ephesians chapter 5. And then what does Jesus do? Jesus rebukes them, exposes them for their faulty interpretation of no-fault divorce. It was wrong in Moses' day. Moses did not command them to get a divorce. He permitted it to regulate the egregious pervasiveness of men throwing their wives out on the street in order to protect the rights and reputation of the one who's been, I mean, violently at times, but egregiously sinned against. It was wrong in Moses' day. It was wrong in Jesus' day. He says there in verse 5, did you notice? Because of your hardness, of heart. The word literally means a tough and dried up heart. 
a heart that was clogged. Its arteries were clogged with lust, idolatry, selfishness, and ungodly passions that hate God and hate his word. You see, Jesus acknowledges that Moses did contain a clause about writing a certificate of divorce. He didn't deny that's what the text said. Not because God commanded divorce after sexual sin, as both rabbis taught, but was simply regulating it. It was a concession to manage the heartless and cold treatment of husbands kicking their wives out into the street with no covering, no finances, and no male headship to provide and protect them. This was not a passage giving an open door towards no-fault divorce, but an allowance to protect the innocent party, their reputation, and their rights to remarry if he or she so chose, if her husband, or in this sense, even to wife, would divorce for other reasons than sexual immorality. In other words, the Pharisees allowed the lust of their hearts to put words into God's mouth that God never said. God did not command divorce in Deuteronomy 24. He allowed it under certain conditions because of the pervasiveness of evil. So how did Jesus conclude his perfect exposition of Scripture towards the Pharisees? What word from the Lord, if you will, did Jesus give his opponents who twisted Scripture and wanted to separate from their wives for frivolous reasons? Look at Mark 10, verse 9. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Jesus takes them back to the beginning, to the book of Genesis, the Garden of Eden. There was no sin. There was no flaw. There was nothing wrong with God's world or men or women or marriage. If you want to know God's word on marriage, you must start back in the beginning when sin had not corrupted it. Genesis 2 and then Genesis 1. Here in Mark 10, Jesus is simply reiterating, taking the ridiculously low bar that people had made for marriage and jacking it way back up to where it always was designed to be. One man one woman glued together in the bond of marriage until God separates them at death. As Thomas Adams once said, as God by creation made two out of one, so again by marriage he made one out of the two. The question then remains, is divorce ever permissible? And what about remarriage? Within conservative, faithful, evangelical Christians, there are a few different positions on those questions. The first position, you can write these down, is the permanence view of marriage. The permanence view of marriage. This is the view that states a Christian should never initiate divorce and can never remarry under any circumstances after a divorce 
unless their spouse has died. If a spouse forces the divorce and leaves the other spouse without a choice, the spouse would concede to the divorce for the sake of peace, but would not initiate the divorce. And subsequently, that man or woman would remain single the rest of their life. Two very well-known, well-respected theologians who hold this view is John Piper and Vody Bauckham. If you would like to see their sermons and their very long papers on this, I'm happy to give them to you for you to do your own studies. Uh, but it is a minority view. Uh, the vast majority of Christians throughout church history have not held that view. Uh, but some very well-respected and brothers in Christ that I would get in the foxhole with do hold that view. The second position is the semi-permanence view. The semi-permanence view. This is the view that states a Christian may sometimes initiate divorce under certain conditions, but can never remarry after a divorce unless their spouse has died. The only grounds for divorce would be sexual immorality, physical abandonment, and physical abuse. The third position has some variations within it, but to save you an exhausting amount of time, I'm going to try to summarize it into one complete view. This is the permissive view. The permissive view. Within this view, a Christian may sometimes initiate divorce and may sometimes remarry. Some within this view say that legitimate divorce and remarriage may only occur based on adultery or a spouse committing porneia or sexual immorality. That's the Greek word there. And that is the hotly debated word over this issue. Again, I'm saving you about 30 hours of study. I can give you resources to think more about that. Or when I preach through Matthew, maybe in 20 years. We'll see. A sexual sin that severely violates the sanctity of the marriage bond and marriage bed. Uh, the two passages often cited to support the permissive view come from Matthew 5, 31 to 32, and Matthew 19, verse 9, which was the chapter we were in earlier. And I'll just read them for you. Matthew 5, verses 31 to 32 says, It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. Deuteronomy 24, you've already heard that. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality or porneia, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Matthew 19, verse 9 says, And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. Uh, there are variations even within this position, that some would say that there are possibilities of grounds for divorce and remarriage after the desertion or abandonment of a spouse, as well as egregious sins like physical abuse, and in some cases, unrepentant spousal neglect. 1 Corinthians 7 verse 15 addresses an unbelieving spouse deserting the marriage bond. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7 15, but if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. The implication then is if the spouse is no longer enslaved, they are free to remarry, but only in the Lord. Now, you might be thinking to yourself, I didn't even know there were different views on this topic. That's okay. 
It's called following Jesus and understanding that Scripture is clear, but it has to be studied intently, rigorously, and carefully. Others of you may be rethinking how you've approached this topic your whole life, and your views may change as a result of this teaching in some way. And some of you might be left confused and unsure having never seriously studied this topic before. Just to be clear, this sermon is not designed to answer all your questions about divorce and remarriage. You can go speak to the elders on why, because we have stayed and plowed through a variety of issues, and that is not something we can answer in one sitting. But just like the disciples in Jesus' day, you may be shocked to think that Jesus is too narrow, or Jesus' legitimate grounds for divorce and narrow well, they're just somehow contrary to the way you raised. You were raised maybe that you thought, well, we're incompatible. We're not attracted to each other. The kids are out of the home. We have nothing in common. We just are so different. Let's get a divorce. If that's the way you were raised, well, Jesus' words might be piercing this morning. It might be putting that seatbelt in the car of your marriage and saying, not so fast. But a very important question comes up then with how Jesus answers his disciples' question. Notice what he says in Mark chapter 10, verses 10 to 12. The disciples want to take Jesus alone in private to ask some further questions. And in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. If you've ever studied Matthew 19, verses 1 to 12, and Mark 10, verses 1 to 12, side by side, you'll notice there are some similarities, and you'll notice some differences. Again, they're not contradictions. It's harmonizing both passages. The question then lies... Does Mark's account of this situation contradict Matthew? Why does Matthew have the exception clause on grounds of divorce, sexual morality, and not Mark? Well, in the historical context, the phrase, whoever divorces his wife, that does not have the exception clause found in Mark 10, 11, and Luke 16, 18, assumes that an existing belief that was shared amongst the Jews regarding divorce. Again, it was already assumed by both Jews and Romans that sexual immorality was legitimate grounds for divorce. Under the Old Covenant, capital punishment, stoning, killing, putting to death under God's wrath was the crime for committing adultery. Leviticus 20, verse 10, Deuteronomy 22, verse 22. By the time we get to Jesus' day, that was not the norm. It was the writing a certificate of divorce, and it was this no-fault divorce mentality, but everyone assumed already that porneia, or sexual immorality, was legitimate grounds for a divorce. What Matthew's doing is making explicit what Mark and Luke already assumed. But friends, regardless of what view you and I take, of the permanence view, 
semi-permanence view or some spectrum of the permissive view. Both Christians, both positions want to protect and guard the sanctity of marriage. Both positions do not want no-fault, easy divorce in their vocabulary. Both views want to protect the innocent party who might be suffering at the hands of an abusive, adulterous, or otherwise harmful, hard-hearted spouse. You can see this is an important topic, right? It's dense in this room. It was dense in Jesus' day. But it's dense not merely because it's important. It's dense because we need to know how to apply it. This isn't theoretical stuff. This is the real life and real world we live in. So friends, how should we approach this topic as members at CCBC? Let me give you two main ways, okay? And I got some variations in here. I'm going to try to go through these. I know it's a heavy way to end a sermon, but I hope you see the hopefulness in this discussion. At CCBC, how should we approach this topic with one another, I'm sorry, one another as members of this church? Number one, with sensitivity and care and remain charitable with those with whom we disagree. With sensitivity and care and remain charitable with those whom we disagree. After the elders spent four months of reading, discussing, and working through the intricate and complex issues surrounding this topic, we all agreed that each marriage and each divorce situation, or marriage and divorce situation, should be shepherded on a case-by-case basis. The permissive view, as it stands today, and some variation of it, would be what all four elders hold, at least currently, right now. And I just want us to model before you. Just like anything we study in Scripture, we need to be teachable. My view could change 10 years from now on anything, not the gospel, not the Trinity. Fire me if that happens, because I'm a heretic. But if my views on something change, well, that should be because I'm studying Scripture and I'm getting better at handling God's Word. The same should be for you and I, all of us. So we say that that is our position, and we're continuing to study. We would challenge you to do the same. This is not just a pastor conversation. This is a congregation conversation. Any disagreements we might have with one another should be used with charity as we protect the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. Uh, Friends, the elders are for your marriage. The elders are going to sound the alarm. Do not go to that divorce court. Do not hit no. Do not reject. Don't throw it away. Let's fight together. And if we need to protect you from someone who's abusive, who's harmful, who's unrepentant, that's why we're here. I've been in the room with these kind of men. It's ugly, but that's what we signed up for, to protect those who are being harmed. Number two, we should study the scriptures and work hard to apply all of what God says about divorce and remarriage to our life. We should study the scriptures and work hard to apply God's word to any given situation on this topic of divorce and remarriage. Here's a good word of wisdom, and this is not going to satisfy some of you, but I'm going to say it. As Christians, we do not want to allow what God forbids. 
I'm going to say that again so it just sits in. We do not want to allow what God forbids, which includes this topic. And we do not want to forbid what God allows. We do not want to forbid what God allows. And based on our study of Scripture, heeding our own conscience, and evaluating each situation on a case-by-case situation, that might mean the elders would not support someone's divorce or subsequent remarriage if we don't believe it's on biblical grounds. If a member of our church chooses to divorce their spouse for unbiblical grounds or reasons that don't appear clear for us that are permissible, what should that member do? A, repent and be reconciled to your spouse, or B, remain unmarried. That's what the Bible teaches. 1 Corinthians 7, verses 10 and 11. To the married I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and the husband should not divorce his wife. Because marriage should be held in honor among all, I want to speak now to several circumstances of our congregation. First, to those whose marriages are currently in trouble. You may be here this morning and you're contemplating leaving your husband or wife. You could be married to a drunk, an unbeliever, or you're just depressed, lonely, unattracted, and unhappy with your marriage and your spouse, and you're not sure what to do. Every marriage could be on a case-by-case situation, but friend, if that's where you're at this morning, it starts with three words. I need help. If you're in trouble, get help. That's why we're here. That's why we take the church covenant so seriously. When you sign up to be a member of this congregation, in one sense, it's no one's business of personal things, intimate things between you and your spouse. And yet in another sense, because marriage is a public creation ordinance and you are a visible public member of this congregation, we are in covenant to support your marriage. Jackson and Lindsay should be pro Blake and Julie making it to the very end. And Julie and Blake should be pro Jackson and Lindsay making it to the very end. And that should be our heart all over this room. We should be championing, supporting, and fighting for one another's marriage by God's grace. Secondly, to those who are divorced, they divorced their spouse. You divorced your spouse in the past, and now you're realizing they were for unbiblical grounds and have since remarried. Well, according to Mark 10, if you recognize your sin, confess it to the Lord. That union at that moment in time was an adulterous union. If you divorced someone on on biblical grounds and went and remarried someone else, Jesus says you committed adultery. Now, what does that mean? Does that mean you're currently in unrepentant adultery to your new spouse? Well, no. You've made vows. Keep them. Jesus looks at the woman at the well who'd been married multiple times. He didn't say you had four people you shacked up with. He said, no, you've had four to five husbands. 
and the one you are with now is not. It was initially, it was perfunctory. It was at a moment in time, the initial act. But if you are married, you are truly married. So keep your vows by God's grace to the spouse you are married to. And to those who have been sinned against by a spouse who committed adultery against you or abandoned you or otherwise divorced you for unbiblical grounds. Friends, pray for the repentance of your ex-husband or your ex-wife. Pray for God to have mercy on them. I was freshly in Acts chapter 8 yesterday in my quiet time. I told Julie this. I'm like, I'm not sure if it'll be in the sermon, but I think it's hopeful. Stephen preaches this long sermon. He's being put in the public square to be stoned for representing Jesus. And who's in the crowd? Saul of Tarsus, holding the garments of those about to kill him. And you know what comes out of Stephen's mouth? Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And then he went to glory. If you've been abandoned, deserted, or cheated on, and your spouse has never repented, you look to glory, and you say, Lord, have mercy on them before it's too late, but I'm following you. You keep following Jesus, and you pray that they would one day repent. To those who are single and desiring marriage, a believer and unbeliever should not marry. A believer and an unbeliever should not marry. Pursue marriage with a true Christian. 1 Corinthians 7, 39, 2 Corinthians 6. Marry wisely and marry well. Being a Christian is the first shelf. And then character. And then commitment. And then are you attracted to them? Notice the priorities there. Christian, character, commitment, and do you like looking at them and being around them? If God chooses to not bring you a spouse in this life, live a celibate life totally devoted to the Lord. Enfold yourself into godly families who will make you their own. 1 Corinthians 7 could be a wonderful passage to meditate on. To the widows in the room, the debate among Christians is never over if a Christian can remarry after the death of their spouse. The Bible consistently supports widows and widowers of remarrying a Christian if they so chose. Romans 7, verse 2, 1 Corinthians 7, 39, 1 Timothy 5, 14. But friends, regardless of whether you've been divorced or you've remarried after the divorce or you're currently married to the same spouse or you're single or you're a widow, we don't put our identity or our hope in our marital status. We put our hope in our identity in Christ alone. Friends, Jesus came to make all types of sinners his bride. Jesus came and died on the cross for abusers, adulterers, Porn addicts, the perverted, the homosexuals, the idolaters, the liars, the greedy, the arrogant, the passive, the lazy, the feminist, 
the abrasive, the nagging, the drunkard, the verbally cruel, the one who can't provide well for his family out of greed, the promiscuous and the immoral. Friends, the only thing we have accumulated on our garb are filthy rags. Everybody. Anytime we love something or someone more than Yahweh, it is spiritual adultery. Friends, if you want to know if you're humble this morning, did you even just think for a moment that before God clothed you with his righteous robes, you were a spiritual adulterer to him? We're all dirty from the inside out. And yet by his grace, he came to save filthy, sinful, faithless people like us and make us his beloved bride. And friends, God came to save and show his boundless compassion for the weak, the wounded, the brokenhearted, the lonely, the abandoned, the victims of adultery, the victims of abuse, the victims of betrayal, the victims of rape, the victims of incest. Friends, he came not only to save the worst of sinners, but also to show compassion and care to those who've been deeply sinned against. Friends, it's God's love that leads us to repentance, and it's God's love that heals the deepest wounds. So husbands and wives, if you're married here this morning, humanly speaking, we have responsibilities by God's grace to protect our marriages. How do you do that? Pray together and pray for one another when you're not together. Study the scriptures together. Read a Christian book together. Come to church together. Allow mature godly couples to speak into your marriage. Have some awareness of how your spouse is doing emotionally. Make yourself attractive for your spouse alone. Don't try to catch the gaze of someone who does not belong to you. Be on guard against spending a lot of time with someone of the opposite sex. Spending time with unguarded and unaccountable time alone with someone of the opposite sex is dangerous. Humble yourself. Ask your spouse for honest feedback. Where can I improve as a husband or a wife? Where am I dropping the ball? Be vigilant with how you're spending your time on the internet, especially on social media. Sinclair Ferguson says, it is better to enter heaven having decided to never use the internet again rather than going to hell, clicking on everything you desire. Brothers and sisters, if you marry, if you're single, if you marry, marry wisely and marry well. And if you are married, stay faithful to your marriage vows. That's what Jesus would have for us this morning. Timothy Whitmer says, it must be clear to those who seek to enter into marriage that God's design is for a permanent commitment between a man and a woman, and that marriage is as long as we both shall live not as long as we both shall love. Learn to love the spouse you chose to marry and honor God with the marriage you're in. Christ kept his promise to love you in the past. He's keeping his promise to love you and make you holy in the present. 
And he's going to fulfill that promise when he presents us, the church, to himself without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. May Christ's love for us sustain our love even with those who don't deserve that love. May Christ's commitment to stick and to stay with us strengthen us to stick with our marriage vows. At the end of the day, what is our hope in life and death? Is it singleness? Is it divorcing? Is it marriage? It's in Christ and in Christ alone. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we end this sermon in a sober way. It ended sober with the disciples as they had obviously been led astray and misguided by the more flippant, easy, no-fault divorce mentality. Lord, we pray that we would walk away from this sermon thinking much about Christ and his great love for us, the church. We pray that every married couple here would rethink the vows they've made to you and in the company of others and keep them till you separate them from their spouse at death. Lord, we also pray for those who've been divorced, who've been abandoned or sinned against. Lord, we pray you would heal their broken hearts, that we would love them and protect them and care for them. And we also pray for those who might have even sinfully divorced their spouse and sinfully remarried when they didn't have clear grounds. We pray that they would acknowledge that to you, to those they might need to confess that to, and now look forward and be faithful with the marriage vows they've already made again. Lord, we love you. Lord, cause us to be faithful to you. And may our hope remain in Christ alone. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.